0: You're listening to the New World of Work podcast by the McKinsey Global Institute. We're exploring the future of work, how automation technologies, including artificial intelligence and robotics, could disrupt how we work, where we work, the skills and education we need to work, and what we can do to prepare for these transitions today. Hello
1: and welcome to the latest podcast in our
0: series
2: on the New World of Work. Today, we'll be listening to James Monika, the chairman of the McKinsey Global Institute in a conversation with two CEOs. They are John Donahoe of ServiceNow and Jeff Weiner of LinkedIn. And they'll be sharing their perspectives on how business can play a role in improving work for people in the age of automation and AI. You can download our latest McKinsey Global Institute research on the subject at mckinsey.com backslash MGI. And the most recent report that they'll be discussing is called Jobs Lost, Jobs Gained, Workforce Transitions in a Time of Automation.
1: Clearly, when it comes to this issue of the future of work and automation, businesses are at the center of it. They're at the center of it for several reasons. One is they sometimes are large employers of, of people and workers, and they are embracing these technologies that are starting to automate Uh, work. They play a central role in the choices that they make about using these technologies. Sometimes when they're particularly interesting businesses they're also in the business of building products and services that also change and transform how we do work, uh, if they're particularly interesting businesses. And then sometimes you come across rare business leaders who are far forward looking and think beyond their own businesses and think about what these things actually mean for society. So with that note, I'm actually quite delighted that we have two of them who satisfy all three of those. They are employers, they are innovators building products and services, and they're also thinking beyond their own businesses to what this means for society. So with that, I'd like to invite Jeff and John uh, to come join me. Um, Jeff and John don't need lots of elaborate uh, introductions, but I will say John was CEO of eBay and is now CEO of uh, ServiceNow. Jeff, uh, CEO of LinkedIn, uh, has been at LinkedIn for a decade. I want to start with one question, which is, uh, right now there's something in the air about the idea that businesses are limiting, especially tech businesses like yours, are limiting the opportunities that people have to prosper and do well. And so let's talk about that quite directly. I mean, Jeff, You've been talking about this economic graph. What is it and what does it have to do with LinkedIn?
2: The economic graph is uh, really the manifestation of our vision at LinkedIn to create economic opportunity for every member of the global workforce. North of 3 billion people in the global workforce, some would estimate as many as 3.5 billion people in the global workforce. And for us, we draw a clear distinction between vision and mission, where a vision is true north, it's the dream, it inspires us, but the mission is the overarching objective that we measure ourselves against. It's realizable and hopefully inspirational. And the the mission is to connect the world's professionals, make them more productive and successful. And when we started to recognize many years ago, it was probably six-plus years ago, that we were actually on a path to connect the world's professionals, we started asking ourselves what's next. And though there's plenty of work still to be done with regard to the mission, uh, we decided uh, that we should start taking the, the vision seriously and thinking about how to operationalize it. And so that's what the economic graph is all about. A graph refers to uh, the the mechanism through which you map nodes or connections. At LinkedIn, historically, we always had this idea of a a professional graph where we connected uh, professionals and we created value for them through those relationships. The economic graph is digitally mapping the global economy and we want to do that across six different pillars or dimensions where ultimately we'll have uh, a profile on LinkedIn for every member of the global workforce, all three billion plus folks. Uh, we will have a profile for every company in the world. And when you include small, medium-sized businesses, there are some that would estimate there's north of 60 million uh, companies in the world. Uh, we'd like for there to be uh, a digital representation for every available job in the world. Uh, there's roughly 20 million available jobs that can be digitally uh, accessed uh, and made available to people online. Uh, We'd like for there to be uh, digital representation for every skill required to obtain the jobs offered by those companies and with the acquisition of Linda that we did several years ago, it's not only about uh, creating a structured database around these skills and the skills that would be necessary to get those jobs, but it's providing the coursework enable people to acquire those skills. So,
1: so you basically want to be able to connect people to both jobs and give them information about the skills that are needed out there. Is that right? Uh, yeah,
2: and then the, the idea is to enable all forms of capital, intellectual capital, working capital, human capital, to flow to where it can best be leveraged, and in doing so help lift and transform the global economy.
1: John, how would you think about that question? Again, how have you created opportunities in the business that you've been involved in for people? Because you've mostly run and created technology-based businesses at some level.
0: I think these uh, technology platforms can create opportunities. So I got to see this firsthand at eBay, Right, to use technology to help people, uh, entrepreneurs and small businesses, earn their living. And uh, about 1.4 million people made their primary or secondary living on, on eBay. When you actually get to see who these people are, they are sometimes unemployed when they started their businesses. They're often people who were laid off. They're not coming from privileged circumstances. But what technology has done is to augment their ability to compete on their creativity and their hard work. What the technology in essence did was take what is complex and mundane about building a business, take that part out so that they could compete. And it was a fascinating use of technology to enable people to sort of create economic opportunity for themselves and do the work they love. And create a job out of it. No one was thinking about creating a job out of, uh, you know, collar stays or selling collar stays or selling all the hundreds of thousands of different uh, items people sell on eBay.
1: Is the analogy in your case that we shouldn't think of wages but think of incomes? Because you provided a way for people to provide, to get incomes, in a much wider range of things beyond just their wages. Yeah, right? I think so.
0: I mean, I think, I, I think the broader income inequality issues are very complicated. Um, and so... Um, Mine's far bigger than mine, can solve those. But I do think that the, the technology can help people do higher value-added work, bring the very best out of themselves so that they can create jobs.
1: Right. Well, take that to what you're doing now, ServiceNow. What's the, what's, how are you it, doing it, that? How, it was sort of a
0: similar thing that led me to, to, to ServiceNow in a fairly unanticipated way. We all know how technology and cloud-based applications have transformed our lives as consumers right at home. Right? They, they've taken what used to be complex and often tedious or mundane and made it easy, intuitive. They've added value to our lives. But as I reflected about technology in the workplace, no one would say technology in the workplace is easy, intuitive, or adds value. It's frustrating. It's complicated. Um, you know, We spend huge amounts of our time at work dealing with the complexity of technology. When I got introduced to ServiceNow, I realized that, that, that cloud-based platforms have the power to transform our experiences at work in the same way that others have done it at home. And increasingly, right, the millennials, in particular, are demanding the same experiences at work as they're getting at home. Right. And so that's what, in essence, ServiceNow does, is we make the world of work work better for people. I'll just take a small example, um, and it's, it's mundane, but I often think these big topics like automation and AI get down to our own mundane lives. In PayPal, you have your money in PayPal. If you can't get into PayPal, you can reset your password in about one minute safely anywhere in the world from your mobile phone, and you do it safely. That's that's convenience. That's adding value to your life. How many people here have had trouble resetting their email password at work, right? Why is it at work, we can't get into our email, and we have to call the IT guy, right? And it's a frustrating experience. The IT professional hates it. We hate it, it's frustrating. It's not our money, it's our email. And so what ServiceNow does in simple terms is it allows you to get the same kind of self-help automation to reset your email password as you would be able to reset your banking or PayPal password at home. You just look at the amount of work that is medial, redundant, frustrating tasks and how technology can help simplify those, automate them, so that you can spend more time at work on value-added activities, creative activities, much like eBay sellers could spend more time selling. That
1: actually then raises a the question. So both of you are CEOs, both of you employ lots of people, uh, but at the same time, you're also clearly must be embracing these technologies. You're probably embracing machine learning, You're probably embracing automation in one form or another. Let's talk about that and the choices you're making. Jeff, where are you embracing these tools in your business and how are you using them? Yeah. So, it, and you can I mean, imagine the follow-on question, which is, what does it mean for the people who work for you? Sure.
2: So, I mean, we can segment <laughs> it across at least three different constituents. So, we've got members, customers, and our employees. So, with regard to members, uh, machine learning has always been a foundational part of the LinkedIn offering, and. Uh, We're trying to make the best recommendations we can and create the most relevant experience we can for our members, whether that's in the feed or whether that's with regard to a skill that you should be learning or a job that we think is going to be well suited for you uh, based on your experience, your background, who you know, et cetera. Uh, So for members, uh, we can make better matches by virtue of leveraging that technology. Uh, we can also uh, better understand where skills gaps exist. So if they're interested in a particular job, uh, by virtue of their profile, we can see what skills they have, what experiences they have, and when we think there's a gap, we can make a recommendation in terms of the kinds of skills they should be picking up, which by the way are not necessarily relegated exclusively to technology, interpersonal skills, uh, leadership, some of the softer skills that was mentioned earlier is gonna really continue to be essential. With regard to customers, Uh, really all of our business lines are oriented around making our customers more productive, more uh, efficient, more effective uh, across uh, multiple value propositions. We just announced uh, a new product suite called Talent Intelligence. In use cases for the economic graph we would talk about it in the context of locality and geography. So you could pick any place in the world and understand skills gaps within that locality. You could understand the fastest growing jobs and skills required to obtain those jobs. You could understand the skills of the aggregate workforce within that locality. You could measure the gap And then you could equip uh, those that could make use of it, vocational training facilities, junior colleges, four-year universities, with data that demonstrates where those gaps exist so they can close the gaps, create just-in-time curriculum, and make sure that they're training the workforce for the jobs that are and will be and not just the jobs that once were. We can now do that for customers. So within any company anywhere in the world, we can help them develop uh, a workforce strategy that is going to better position them in light of all the changes that are taking place based on our infrastructure, our data, et cetera. And then for employees, uh, you know, it's similar to what we're doing for our customers. To the extent uh, we can find these repeatable high volume tasks uh, that don't necessarily require the kinds of uh, talent that we have within the organization, if we can take the robot out of the role and leave them to the parts that uh, are higher value added, that are uniquely suited uh, for our kind of talent and our team, Uh, that makes them more efficient and more effective.
1: Let's just imagine you're the CEO of a large retailer, or the CEO of a large manufacturing company, the CEO of a large, very people-intensive business, and suddenly these technologies come along and you can automate things. How would you think about that? I mean, how should CEOs think about that question where there clearly are business benefits to using these technologies, but at the same time you've got these large workforces. How should one think about that as a leader, as a CEO?
0: The word automation, the word AI, evokes a very binary, a binary, almost emotional reaction. It's going to be the robots, right? It's going to be the takeover of the machines, and humans will be gone.
2: Makes for better movies, Jeff. It makes for better movies, yeah, <laughs>
0: exactly. And then to be honest, you know, I think the, the other side of the equation is you've got a lot of Silicon Valley companies with their head in the sand just saying, well, technology's great, there'll be no second-order effects, and neither is true. The way automation really has the biggest impact is is what you said in your report. It's taking pieces of jobs. It's taking the parts often the redundant, the mundane, the not very exciting parts of a job and and simplifying it and automating it. I'll give two examples. ServiceNow, we make automation software and we make automation software for customer support um, operations. So in our own customer support operation we have 400 engineers that solve our customers' problems when those customers call. About 10% of those engineers' time is spent trying to figure out categorizing what the problem is and getting it to the right person to fix it. So we turned machine learning on in our platform and within a week the machine was more accurately categorizing what the inbound customer problems were and getting it to the right person so it could be solved more quickly and solved the right way in the first time. So you could say, oh, my God, that took away 10% of the jobs of the 400 engineers. Of course, that's not what they felt. They felt like it was the bottom 10% of what they hated to do, and now they took that 10% and they applied it to solving customers' real problems. And that's a case where automation, in this case machine learning, is taking a piece of a job or a role, and often the lowest value added piece, and freeing them up from it. Second example, we had the privilege of having dinner with Doug McMillan, the CEO of Walmart, and his team, uh, what was it, about a month ago, talking about this very issue. And Walmart's the largest employer in the world. And he was so articulate about saying that Walmart is a people company, not a technology company. And yet, our store associates spend a reasonable amount of time restocking shelves and doing tasks that they don't really like to do and are not particularly creative, customer-serving tasks. So they're now trying to use automation to simplify and automate some of the restocking tasks so that their store associates can spend more time with customers calling upon their customer facing skills and their creativity. And what I thought was so nice about that is Doug has declared we are a people company, first and foremost, and technology is in service to our people, not vice versa. By the way, Pierre Midtier said that at, at eBay, um, Fred Letty said that at ServiceNow, Reed Hoffman said that at LinkedIn, that technology is in service to people, not the other way around. Do, do you think most CEOs think that way?
2: I don't know if I would uh, overgeneralize across the board. I think it depends on industry. It depends on the CEO. It depends on the leadership style. It depends on the talent they have around them. I think increasingly people need to recognize it. I agree with everything John said, but I'm reminded of the old adage, you can't fix it if you can't measure it. And I think you gotta start by measuring your workforce. You gotta understand your workforce. And as you well know, you've got companies with gigantic scale on a global basis, and surprisingly maybe to this audience, Uh, leaders within some of those organizations don't know where all the people are. They don't know the skill sets of their workforce. They don't know the fastest growing jobs. They don't know where the skills gaps exist. They don't know where there are geographic surpluses of talent and where they can tap that talent and where they should be shifting resources from one locality to another locality. So to the extent uh, leaders can proactively get ahead of these trends, you don't want to be on the the reactive side of this. You don't want to wake up one day and see that you've got a double digit percentage of your workforce that is not, they don't have the right skills right. for the work that any organization needs to undertake to remain competitive and to grow. So you want to get ahead of that. And uh, whether it's LinkedIn, whether it's ServiceNow, whether it's any organization that's now in the business of helping organizations uh, digitally transform or better understand some of these future of work trends, um, you can measure it, you can get ahead of it. and then. Once you measure it, you can do something about it. You can iterate and improve upon your workforce strategies. You can try to figure out how to make sense and make use of automation. As James's team has reported previously, roughly half of all work activities and work processes are susceptible to automation. I like that language, susceptible. It's not that every worker is gonna be displaced. As a matter of fact, the more work you and research that your team does, the more it appears that people won't be displaced so much as they're gonna end up changing roles or needing new skills to take advantage of the work that exists. And so in light of that, um, how can you get ahead of that trend and see where people within your organization can be reskilled to take advantage of a job that's going to be growing? Uh, that your organization is going to become dependent
1: on actually, on, on, on that note, Jeff, I mean you, you must have probably the most unique vantage point out of anybody in this ecosystem in the sense that you probably see more than anybody what's happening in terms of trends and skills and what skills are in demand because now recruiters come to you and employees are yeah. changing their resumes. So what are you seeing as you know in terms of the evolution of changes yeah. of needs skills as these as yeah so
2: Uh, First, not surprisingly, tech remains king, and if you were to look at the fastest growing emerging jobs, uh, unsurprisingly, they're related to some of the trends that we're talking about with regard to data. So, machine learning, data science, um, big data engineers, uh, three of the top five uh, fast growing emerging jobs. So that's one. Two, maybe a little less intuitive uh, because it's kind of the converse, is that it's not just about technology, and I think this is going to be a trend that people really start to embrace going forward. Uh, computers, machines, although if you watch some of the videos uh, circulating right now in terms of robots trying to replicate human behavior, uh, we'll see how, how fast that gap gets closed, but hopefully it's going to be a while before machines can replicate uh, the human touch and, and intuition and creativity and interpersonal skills. And so you see jobs that uh, require those interpersonal skills that continue to grow very quickly. Um, so, sales development representatives, customer success representatives. Uh, these are jobs. These are skills that require interpersonal relationships. Can
1: you make a list so we can take notes? Yeah.
2: Can take- we we actually yeah <laughs> we can do better than make a list and take notes. We'll we'll distribute this information very right. broadly. So. Uh, We have a a monthly workforce report, and we're starting to do that on a global basis. Um, And then I guess the third is a trend we haven't touched on yet. We've been focused on AI and automation. Um, Two additional areas that we may get into. One is uh, what we believe are multiple skills gaps that exist uh, depending on locality. And the third is the rise of independent work and independent workers. And we see that manifesting itself in some of the fastest-growing skills and roles. So, um, for example, uh, realtors, so people uh, becoming real estate agents. Uh, I think is a byproduct in turn of uh, the the flexibility uh, that is afforded folks uh, with that kind of independent work. Also, I think uh, a reflection of the bounce back in the housing market. I think it also demonstrates the rise of independent work. Uh, Also uh, trends, more secular trends in terms of demographics and psychographics is fitness. And uh, is anyone here familiar with uh, bar? How many of you do bar? the bar in the dance studios for those of you unfamiliar with this so uh, people being certified in teaching uh, workouts that leverage that bar is one of the fastest growing skills that we're seeing uh, it's off of <laughs> a relatively smaller base are you qualified uh, but I- I'm not qualified and for the life of me could not get my leg on top of that bar if asked me to. so anyway these are right. examples that I think are somewhat illustrative of some of the, the secular trends taking place
0: Yes, yeah, so go ahead, John. also just to build on, I think there, again, the, the, there's a sense of if you don't have, if you aren't a computer scientist, you don't have a future. What a lot of these technologies, you again wrote about it in your report so beautifully, is um, people creating jobs where you work with technology. So ServiceNow creates ServiceNow administrators. They don't have to have technical degrees, they're working with the technology. There is a whole host of jobs being created where you have to work with technology. You don't have to be a technologist. And so some of the job reskilling and training is how do you get people comfortable with that? How do you build those skills? And those skills, you don't need a four year degree on it's, it's to some extent, breaking down barriers and boundaries so that there's a comfort of working with the technology. Cause a lot of the jobs of the future, I think will be working with technology, not being, the builder of the technology. Just
2: to build on that, I I couldn't agree more, and I think it's so important. Oftentimes when we talk about technology, you can see it even in the examples I gave of the fastest growing jobs, which are more advanced technology skills. There are basic technology skills that enable people to be better positioned, being able to use a word processor, being able to uh, navigate uh, your way around a spreadsheet. I think one of the reasons it's so important is not only does not everyone have access to the kind of prestigious four-year universities that historically have been required to obtain jobs and trust me there are plenty of people out there that can do amazing work if given the opportunity and have or- organizations widen and broaden the aperture of the, the kind of talent they're bringing into their organizations but if exactly to the point of your research James uh, people are going to need to learn new skills especially in a digitally based economy right. this becomes a foundational element yeah. of that and there's a there's kind of a slight pivot a softer pivot and a hard pivot and if you have to start from scratch it's going to be very, very difficult to compete but, but, for those jobs. But, but,
1: but here's the thing though, I mean, I, I think, you know, our track record on skilling and skills development is not great, and as we're, a, a we're, it's not great, a country? as countries, as societies and communities, uh, and the facts are not in our favor here. Companies are spending less on the job training, countries are spending less on the job training, and the rates of success are not as high. So. And we're all saying that skills are gonna matter and reskilling is gonna matter. So how do we break that, the fact that we, we haven't been able to solve it and it's probably about to get more challenging? For starters,
2: companies have to step up, period, full stop. You know, there's a, an ongoing, I don't even know if it's a debate so much as a discussion. Is it the responsibility of governments? What's the responsibility of, of companies? Companies are on the front lines. Companies see the trends. Companies are doing the hiring. Companies are creating the jobs. Companies should be responsible for reskilling, upskilling, uh, learning and
0: development. Uh, so I think it's and, critical, and just to build on that for you, keep, it's for their own employees and then for the implications of our products, particularly in technology, for the implications of what our platforms do, we have to take responsibility Absolutely. for that You're as right. well.
2: And it's not just up to companies. It's not up to any constituency in isolation. Uh, We've been working with Zoe's organization and Markle, and NGOs become critical. And we're trying to figure out how to create middle skill jobs. We're trying to figure out how to create opportunities for people that don't have those four-year degrees, who can learn new skills, who can become certified, get their foot in the door, and kick ass. And we see it all the time. We've got programs at LinkedIn designed to broaden the aperture. Uh, We have one guy who actually became homeless and uh, developed an application to figure out how to assist people finding shelter. Um, He was brought into this program that we call REACH, which is designed for people that don't have the traditional engineering background, but have been certified or have completed a a coding boot camp. And these people have the growth mindset, they have the resiliency, they have the perseverance, and they're amazing. And of a class of roughly 30 to 40 people, we had 80% yield in terms of wow. becoming engineers at LinkedIn. So I, whether it's LinkedIn or ServiceNow or any company, I think it's incumbent upon us to, to get involved and to start thinking about how to create these opportunities to partner with NGOs. And by the way, maybe governments aren't doing as much as we'd all like, but there are governments that are allocating billions of dollars to reskilling. And hopefully they're gonna be able to take advantage of data and infrastructure that didn't exist previously to, to make those investments count. So are you both optimistic?
0: And at the same time, what do you worry about? I think. The last 10 to 15, maybe 20 years has been sort of the glory years, if you will, of this new round of cloud-based, mobile-based technologies, right. various Silicon Valley-based technologies that have enhanced our quality of our lives as consumers and increasingly at work. Um, and so there's some very goodness. It's improved the quality of many people's lives. Right. But there are the second-order consequences of that, which are you're writing about here. I don't think, on average, Silicon Valley leadership stepped up to owning and at least confronting. No one can solve some of these unilaterally, but engaging in the dialogue. um, So so let me press
1: you on that. If you're gonna make a call to action to your peers, your business leader peers, what would would that call to action be?
0: Think about your business, your platform, think about the impact it's having, the positive impact, which we focus on a lot, but think about the second order implications of of what it's creating and how you can use either your technology, your product, your innovation, or just yourself as a platform, as a company, as an employer, as a, as a voice, and engage. The solutions aren't going to be easy on any of this, and I don't think any one company or any one NGO or any one government is going to solve it alone. We were talking earlier, the, one of the frustrating things right now is there's, there's a little bit of a divide between certainly government and business on constructive dialogue around this in this country. I sort of personally was hopeful, I didn't particularly like the results of the election, But I thought one of the root causes of the election was this issue of people saying, I have lost economic hope. And so I want change, some kind of change. And I guess I was hopeful, well, given that was the case, that we would have had in our political narrative constructive engagement on this, because it's not an easy solution, but it feels like it's been the last thing. It's been off the radar screen. And I think we need to take leadership roles and engaging with NGOs like Zoe's, with governments where that's appropriate, to try to find solutions. And try to find uh, solutions almost is the wrong word because no one's going to solve it but try to make progress yes. try to make progress
1: would you add anything to that jeff before we open up maybe uh, to you asked whether
2: or not we're optimistic i would say cautiously optimistic i think if you look at some of the longer term global secular trends in terms of quality of of life you know, the gates foundation has been doing a ton of work on this and it largely goes overlooked in a society that increasingly wants to find the most titillating headline and the most negative thing to talk about but there's a lot of good things happening in the world in terms of quality of life improving uh, for the seven billion plus people on the planet. Um, The the caution comes in part by virtue of the unintended consequences uh, of these technologies and the rate of advancement, the rate of innovation, which continues to accelerate. And I, I don't know that we always have the time to fully understand or appreciate the implications and the consequences, particularly the unintended consequences. So the, the advice I would have is to manage and lead with compassion so that people who are responsible for these products and these services and these companies understand the impact that they're having, not just on shareholders. It's not just about long-term shareholder value creation. It's about the value these companies are creating for society as a whole. And so the more we understand those consequences, I think the more likely we are for you know, good outcomes.
1: Well, I'm glad the world has the two of you as CEOs. I'd like to thank both of you for being part of this you session. Much. Appreciate it very much. And thanks, you all for being here. Yeah.
0: Thanks for listening to The New World of Work by the McKinsey Global Institute. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate us on iTunes and share this podcast with your friends. To learn more about the research discussed in today's episode, visit mckinsey.com slash MGI or follow at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter.